So we've been on this topic for, this is the third week now, and this will finish us. Um, believe it's really important. Linda and I have been kicking this idea around for probably a couple of months, talking about it, thinking about it. We've, we've done a lot of the prep for these three messages together. I want to just recap the last couple of weeks and then try to land the whole thing. Um, we started off with, with Romans 12, verse 10, be devoted to one another in love. And the key phrase, honor one another above yourselves. Honor one another above yourselves. Um, we asked the question, what is honor? And honor, we find, means to value. The Greek word behind honor is time. It means to value something. Whereas etime or etimos means to treat something as ordinary or common. And we're making the argument here, making the point that in the church, we have to have this culture of honor where people value one another. Because out in culture, outside the church, in the real world, people do not tend to honor one another very much. Then try to explain the difference between honor and respect, that respect is something that a person earns by how they behave, whereas honor is something that I choose to give to somebody regardless of how they behave. Uh, we're called to honor God, honor parents, honor our spouses, honor government, honor church leaders, and honor Jesus. Uh, Linda last week then started to focus it in more on honor within the church, within the body of Christ, and introduced this concept of a haven of honor that I want to sort of lean into a little bit more later on as well. And this week, I just want to sort of finish that off and, and ask a few questions or try to answer a few questions. Why do we do this? What's the outcome? You know, what's the positive stuff that happens if we create a, a haven of honor? What's the negative stuff that will happen if we don't? How do we do it? What will it look like? And then a, a sort of a, the, 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 the elephant in the room question, do I really need to honor everybody? What about those people who, um, I'm, I'm talking outside of the body of Christ, I think within the body of Christ, yes, you honor everyone. But what about some people out there in the world who do not behave in an honorable way at all? How do we process that from a scriptural point of view? So that's, a, that's going to be a, a difficult question to try to tread lightly around a little bit later on. So why, why do we need to culture this haven of honor? Linda read these verses last week, and I want to just linger on them for a moment before we get, get, get in further. Jesus left. This is Mark chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Jesus left there. Now, where was there? If you back up in the gospel of Mark, at the end of chapter 4 and chapter 5, Jesus has calmed a storm. Uh, he has delivered a man possessed with a legion of demons he has healed a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years and he has raised a 12-year-old girl from the dead. And he's on a roll. That's quite an impressive sort of uh, hit of, of miracles. And immediately after that, he goes to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. Many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? So he's done some 
awesome stuff and he's teaching some awesome stuff and everything is just set up for an outbreak of God stuff in Jesus' hometown. But then somebody starts to say, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. He's in his hometown. He's among people who know him. And they start to dishonor him by saying he's just the carpenter. He's just Joseph's kid. He's just the guy that that fixes your, your sort of squeaky chairs and broken tables or whatever. We know his brothers and we know his sisters. He's just a regular guy. We know his mom. It's Mary. She's that sort of loopy woman who who has this story from years ago about having a child without ever being with a man. And they start to sort of belittle him and dishonor him. And it says in in verses 4 and 5, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor. You see that phrase, without honor? That's our Greek word. Where did it go? There it is, etimos, treated as common or ordinary. And Jesus says he's only treated that way in his hometown, among his own people, among his relatives, in his own home. And he could not do any miracles there. Don't misread that. It doesn't say he would not. He didn't take the huff with them and say, how dare you call me the carpenter? I'm not going to do any powerful miracles among you. He didn't throw the toys out of the pram and strop away. It says he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And what has happened is they have dishonored him and by dishonoring him, they have diminished him. That means they've made him small. They've made him common or ordinary or unimportant. And whenever we diminish people, we create dysfunctional communities where God's power cannot move. The people in his hometown lost access to the anointing and the power that he carried because they did not honor him. And if we have a culture of dishonor where people are not valued, if we do not value one another, if I do not value you, I lose access to the gifts and the anointing and the unique calling that God has placed on your life because I've chosen not to honor you. Whereas when we have this culture that chooses to honor one another, then we truly can receive blessings from one another. We get really familiar with people once we've journeyed with them for a while, don't we? (laughs) The people that we first met that we thought were, were class, we start to see the rough edges and we start to see the flaws. And after a while, we can very much have the attitude of, isn't that just him? Isn't that just her? Isn't he just the carpenter? Isn't he just this? Isn't she just that? Not that special. And we, we, we can very easily slip into a, a rut of thinking the person beside me, behind me, in front of me every week or whenever we gather to pray or, or sit down for a meal, we can start to diminish them a little bit and not really think as highly of them as we should. We can dishonor one another. We can get familiar with the people next to us. Here's what God says about the person next to you, behind you. 
or in front of you. In Psalm 8 verses 4 and 5, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You've made them a little lower than the angels. Now look what it says about mankind, womankind, children, the youngest infant in a womb, unborn. You've crowned them with glory and honor. So the person beside you, in front of you, behind you this morning is crowned by God with glory and honor. And to diminish that and to not honor people and give them the value that they are due will create a dysfunctional community. You are in the presence of greatness. <laughs> I could do that sort of American preacher thing where I make you turn to the person beside you and say something really awkward, but I'm not. You're crowned with glory and honor. Listen to one person explain this and he basically said you, you should be sitting in church and tweeting you would not believe who I'm sitting beside. <laughs> I'm sitting beside Davy Shane and he's crowned with glory and honor. You would not believe who I've ended up sitting beside in church this morning. But we just diminish people and we get familiar and in Jesus' context, in his culture, in his hometown, people started to belittle him and therefore his power could not be shown and they could not access it. The flip side of that is that honor creates what's, what we have referred to as a haven where people can thrive. Now listen to the definition of a haven. It's a place of safety and refuge. It's where the church is meant to be. It's meant to be a place of safety and refuge. And look at this as well. A place offering favorable opportunities or conditions. Just linger on that. A place offering favorable opportunities or conditions. People who would not be able to thrive elsewhere can come into a haven of honor and thrive. People that culture and society might look down on, trample on, ignore, belittle, push into a corner. You've got nothing to give. You're not impressive. You're not special. Uh, you know, leave us alone and just push them down. When they come into a haven, they find themselves in a place that offers opportunities and conditions favorable opportunities and conditions. It's like moving a plant from a, a, a part of the garden where it's just in all of the wrong conditions. It's in the wrong soil and it's got the wrong amount of sunlight and the wrong amount of moisture and everything's wrong and it can't thrive and moving it into a place where all of those conditions around it, the culture around it, is all geared towards thriving and flourishing. That's what a haven of honor means. A place where people can be restored. A place where people can be built up and can live to the full and fulfill their calling and their gifting and their unique identity in Christ. That's what a haven of honor does. We use a phrase quite a lot, particularly as we pray on Tuesday nights. We talk about restoration and a house of restoration. And I would say to you that if we're going to be a house of restoration, then we have to be a haven of of honor because by default then when people come in they will be in this place offering favorable opportunities and conditions to truly be restored 
to be healed and to thrive. So how do we do it? I mean, what are the what are the practicalities? What are just some scriptural and and and, and you know, not even you know most of them scriptural. Some of them just common sense ways of of creating this this culture of honor. First of all, everyone has to play their part. Three quarters of a church community cannot create a haven of honor. Everybody gets to play, from the very youngest to the oldest. From the loudest to the quietest. Everybody plays their part. Romans 12.10 in the English Standard Version says we are to outdo one another. Competition in the church is normally not a good thing. But here's a healthy degree of competition. Outdo one another in showing honor. The way I picture what happens when we gather on a Sunday or a Tuesday or for a meal or to hurl ourselves down a steep hill sitting in a wet tube on a snowy evening. What I picture when we do that, I literally look at those windows and I see rocks rolling along the car park and in the door. Because Peter and Paul as well use this imagery. Peter talks in in his first letter about us being living stones. And I see each of you as being a, a rock, a living stone. And on its own, it's, it's good, but whenever those stones come together, they all sort of pile up on top of each other and they make a dwelling place for God. That, that's what I see. That's what I visualize as the church comes together. We do something together that we can't do on our own. And one of the most difficult things of the last couple of years, frankly, has been a lot of the time precious stones are missing because of sickness and because of various different things. And we really miss those parts of the spiritual building whenever they're not here. But that's what I view it as. And it's the same thing when it comes to building a haven of honor. Every single person has to play a part. Every person. No one gets overlooked in a haven of honor. No one is pushed into the corner, diminished, belittled. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul uses the analogy of the body. Linda again touched on it last week. The eye, can you imagine if one part of your body said to another part, I don't actually need you. Is there any part of your body that that you you can function comfortably without? (laughs) I get mocked about my toes. I've got lovely toes, but I get mocked about my toes all the time. But if we didn't have toes, you wouldn't be able to stand up. You know, you, you, one part of the body can't say to another part, you know what, you're not very nice. You're a bit, you know, manky or whatever. I, I don't need you anymore. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the foot. If the head says to the foot, I don't need you, then the head's not going anywhere because it's the foot that gets the head around. Yeah? So nobody gets overlooked. And in fact, in that passage, Paul emphasizes the fact that it's the sort of behind-the-scenes, less presentable parts that actually you can't function without. And in any church community, in any haven of honor, there will be quiet behind-the-scenes members, but you pull them out and you watch the Jenga tower fall. No one gets overlooked. We need to honor each other by honoring each other's stories. 
One of the things that we sometimes do is we meet people and we project our story onto them and we assume that their life is exactly the same as ours and therefore why can't they behave in exactly the same way we behave? But everybody comes in with a story. Everybody comes in with a background. Everybody comes in with, with, with 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of a story that has shaped them. You've got to honor the story. You've got to honor and respect where people are coming from and that they're not going to be necessarily in exactly the same place as you are. Honor the story. You've got to honor the calling. Just because somebody's gifting is different from your gifting does not mean it's less important. You honor the calling on somebody's life. Respect the difference between you. Help each other to thrive instead of just thinking, well, they just do such and such type of of church ministry work, whatever, and it's not as important as what I do. No, honor one another's calling. Honor the sacrifices that people make. To, To be part of a church like this is a sacrifice. Because people will tell you it's not a real church. And, people, and, and it's a lot easier to go to maybe a more established church, a bigger church, a church that's got all the sort of the bells and whistles, everything in place. It, there's a degree of sacrifice involved to be part of something like this. I honor that. I honor that. It's not the finished article. No church is, but a lot of churches are, look much more the finished article than this. But I honor those who have made sacrifices to get this established and to stick with it. And although we've been here, I guess, about five years, there are relationships that have been going on for 20 years in the background where God has been at work. It's, it's 19 years since we first had Bible studies up in Castle Rise with, with a bunch of university students and sixth formers. And some of those guys are still here. And I honor that. I honor Ashley. He's not here this morning, but I honor Ashley. There was a night that we were doing a Bible study one Friday night, around about 2008. And we were basically going around lots of different places to try and, you know, find somewhere to meet. And uh, there was a guy, I can't even remember how he ended up coming to speak. He was from Canada, I think. He was slightly, you know, off the wall. (laughs) I came out with a few strange things. But at the end, he prayed for us. Now, there's only, there probably was six or eight of us there. And he prayed for us at the end. And he said to Ashley, he said, I see you as a pillar. And in, in spite of some of the random things that he had said before that, um, during his, his Bible study, he was on the money with that. And I honor Ashley because Ashley is a pillar in my life. There, there have been times when I have been falling and wavering and I have fallen against him and he has held me up. And I honor that. And you may see us bantering and, and fooling around and ripping each other to bits sometimes, but there's a deep honor and love. And I honor Stefan and I honor Daniel who also have have walked with us for many, many years and have held us up when we have been wavering and weary and buffeted and knocked around. 
It seems like every time you go to fall over, you can't because there's somebody there who's standing firm and you crash into them and they push you back up again. We need to honour one another. I honour Aaron, my, my faithful friend and companion on the battlefield of praise, about half my age, and yet no one has led me into the presence of God more consistently and faithfully and effectively than he has. I honour it. I honour Jude ministering to the kids, establishing a summer scheme somehow and surviving it for a whole week. And others who help her out, Sarah and Ruth and Charlene and, and our own kids and who, who, who help. And sometimes Sunday morning table kids, it could be almost a four-year-old at one end of the table and an 11-year-old at the other end. And still faithful and consistent. And I honour it. I honour Tanya who organises wacky things like Friday night and I honour Nigel who's just up for everything and goes along with it. I honour Scott who played a huge part in getting the building together the way it is. I honour Jimmy who's the first one in the door every Tuesday night to pray and has fostered. Jimmy started telling us stories one Tuesday night and I tell you what it took tears out of a stone. He started telling the stories about children that he'd fostered. He's fostered piles of kids. I honor that. You're in the presence of greatness. <laughs> Those who are around you are crowned with glory and honor. I honor my own kids whose friends all go to proper churches. <laughs> and I honor Linda. There is a saying, behind every good man, there is a good woman. I profoundly disagree with it. Beside every good man, there is a good woman. Behind just now, beside. Somebody prophesied over us one night, probably about 18 years ago, at Lisnadil and said, you will always be seen ministering together. I honor that. There are times when I, I don't know that, that, that anyone can, you know, quite... Having a church plant is like having a child. And when the church plant is hurting, boy, do you feel it. Boy, do you feel it. We need to honor one another. The sacrifices that people have made to establish and to be together. <clears throat> Honor those who, for whom it's really difficult just to actually get here on a Sunday. Whether that's due to circumstances or discouragement or whatever. And every <clears throat> Sunday morning is a battle to actually be here. I honor that. We need to honor one another with our speech. Proverbs ten eleven says, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. As I've pondered this over the last week or two, I've thought, you know what? I want to get caught talking about people behind their backs in a good way. Have you ever said something about somebody and they have, they have either found out that you said it or they've just walked in at the wrong moment? And suddenly you're really, really ashamed of what you've said. I'd love to flip that on its head and I'd love to get caught saying really good things about people behind their backs. I 
probably I'm, I'm getting quite thick-skinned and I, I don't mind as much if somebody says something negative about me, but if I hear somebody in the church saying something negative about someone else in the church, that really, really, really hurts. We need to honor one another with our speech, face-to-face and whenever people aren't there. I try, I don't always get it right, but I try to just hold to a sort of a, an attitude that I will not say something to you about a person in their absence that I would not say if the person was present. I don't always get it right, but that's just a sort of something I try to hold to. I do not speak about someone in their absence differently than you would speak about them when they're there. We need to honor one another by dying to self. Selfishness kills honor. Paul writes to Philippians and he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Love it when that happens. <clears throat> Honor one another by showing grace. Do you know what? Give each other room to make mistakes. Let this be a house of forgiveness. Let this be a house of forgiveness. Let's dwell on that parable about the guy who was forgiven much and refused to forgive somebody else who only owed him a tiny debt. We are forgiven much. Let it be a house of forgiveness. Let it be a place where whenever you make a mistake, whenever you screw up, you get something wrong, you, you, you do something out of character, you, you, you let yourself down a bit or whatever, that you know I'll be forgiven. I'm part of a haven of honor, a place of grace, a house of restoration. I'll be forgiven. My brothers and sisters will pick me up again. They won't hold it against me. Recognize that we make mistakes. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as God, or as in Christ, God forgave you, Ephesians 4. So those are just some practical ways. This is the stuff that you need to do, the way you need to talk, the way you need to think, the posture you need to have with one another in order to cultivate that culture of honor. But then the big question is this one. Do I really need to honor everyone? Peter says in in chapter 2, verse 17 of his first letter, show proper respect, or the, the Greek word there is honor as well, Everyone. Show proper respect to everyone. Honor everyone. So, and apologies if I tread on any toes here or hit raw nerves. I'm, I'm trying to be, a, you know, vague. Does a wife have to honor a husband who is violent towards her? Does a child have to honor a parent who is violent or abusive towards them? What happens when somebody turns and throws a verse at you like the fifth commandment says you have to honor your father. You have to honor your mother. Well, what if your father or mother does not treat you in a way that, that is acceptable? What if that person, whether it's your employer, parent, spouse, some, someone else in your sphere of connections, it's just actually evil. What, what is, and, and then they throw a verse at you. you. The Bible says you have to honor me. 
And I think the church hasn't thought about this enough. And I think some people are left trapped in horrendous situations because somebody has wheeled out a Bible verse to get them off the hook. And whenever you do that, there's a name for that, that uh, sort of chucking out a Bible verse or two in order to justify wrong behavior. It's called spiritual abuse. And it's something that has become more and more prevalent. Uh, and a lot of Christian organizations are, are trying to come up now with definition for it because it happens so much where someone acts like an absolute devil and then pulls out a Bible verse and hangs it out and says, aha, uh-huh, you still have to honor me. We're connected with a, a website called 318, which is, you know, it, it used to be called Church, oh goodness, of CCPAS. It was, I can't even remember the, 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 what it stands for, but it's basically where we go to for all our child protection information and, and support. And they've changed their name to 318. And here's their definition of spiritual abuse. And it's quite long. It's about three slides long. I want to read it. It's important. Because I think this is a, in, in this question of honor, this whole topic, this is a very important question. Do we have to honor people who are evil? Spiritual abuse defined as coercion and control of one individual by another in a spiritual context. The target... The victim experiences spiritual abuse as a deeply emotional personal attack. This abuse may include manipulation and exploitation, enforced accountability, censorship of decision making, requirements for secrecy and silence, and a pressure to conform, misuse of scripture, or using the pulpit to control behavior. Requirement of obedience to the abuser. The suggestion that the abuser has a divine position. Isolation from others and especially those who are external to the abusive context. Do I really have to honor everyone? Sometimes you have to piece scripture together to get an overview and to get a, a full idea Let me give you an example. If you go to 1 Corinthians and you go to chapter 14, there are a couple of verses buried at the end of the chapter, which some scholars even question whether they should be there. But there's a a verse that says that the women should be silent in church. And if you just go to that verse and no other verse, you then take that and you say, well, the women have to be silent in church. But if you turn a couple of pages back in 1 Corinthians, you'll see Paul speaking about the women praying and prophesying, which means they're obviously not enforced to keep silent. And you will read in Acts and you will read in Romans and you'll read in other places in Scripture and you watch the life of Jesus and you see that women are not pushed into the corner and oppressed and kept silent. And that sometimes in Paul's letters, there are specific things that he's dealing with in specific churches that are not universal, global things for every church. So you need to take a a broad view of Scripture and you need to, to, to not just grab a half a verse somewhere and say, bang, that's it. What does the whole thing say? 
And regarding honoring everyone, Peter says that we show proper respect to everyone, that we honor everyone. But let's, let's sort of just zoom back a wee bit and, and look at the bigger picture and see what else we have. Look at how Paul speaks of a guy called Alexander in 2 Timothy 4. Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he's done. Paul names it, calls it out. This man's evil. God will deal with him. Stephen, as he has just finished his long speech in Acts chapter 7 to the religious leaders who are about to stone him, and he says to them, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. He calls it what it is. He does not lie down and say, look at me, I'm a doormat. Would you like to walk all over me? He calls evil what it is. Look at Jesus. At that time, some Pharisees came to him, Luke 13, and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. I love this. He replied, go tell that fox. I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow and on the third day, I'll reach my goal. Go tell that fox. Now that's quite a derogatory term in that culture. Jesus didn't just say, I'll do whatever Herod tells me to do. Herod was an evil, evil man. And Jesus calls it what it is. And listen to his language to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Here's just a hit list of some of his terms for them. You hypocrites, child of hell, blind guides. You are like whitewashed tombs. You're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? When you take the broad view, you will find Jesus and Paul And you'll find Stephen as well and others in the New Testament. They will call out evil for what it is. They don't show contempt. Jesus forgave those who crucified him. And Stephen did likewise for those who were stoning him. They didn't show contempt. But they did not throw their pearls to pigs. Your honor, giving your honor to somebody is a precious thing. And you don't throw precious things on the ground in front of pigs. You're going to trample over them and eat them if they can, and then turn and attack you. And I'm treading lightly here, but on the strength of how Jesus spoke about Herod and the Pharisees, how Paul spoke about those who opposed him, how Stephen spoke about those who are about to stone him, even though he forgave them, I would say that there are those whose conduct is evil, and they are undeserving of honor. And it is spiritual abuse to force people to honor that which God hates. God hates evil. He hates sin. He hates spiritual abuse. He hates violence. He hates it when people are beaten back into a corner and made to feel less than human. God hates evil and does not call us to honor evil. And I think it's really important because there's a lot of confusion out there, especially sometimes regarding marriages, where people might have the idea that as long as a man does not commit adultery, a woman has to stay with him, even if he beats her and emotionally abuses her and puts her down and treats her like dirt. People will say that she has to stay. I disagree. It's evil, and you don't have to honor evil. Hopefully, 
please God, I have, I've dealt with that difficult question in a way that's acceptable. We're nearly done. Honor defends the church. I was thinking about this just this morning as I was finishing off. You know what? If we create a haven of honor where people flourish and experience restoration, that's also a defense mechanism against dishonorable people. The best way to keep a dishonorable person out or to keep them from infiltrating and causing harm is to create a haven of honor that they just can't survive in. <laughs> it's the flip side of what I said earlier. You want to, you want to create a place where people can thrive and, and be restored and grow and flourish. The, 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 the flip side of that is in that same environment, somebody who wants to do harm will not be able to flourish. They'll not be able to stick it. They'll not be able to breathe the air or survive in the conditions. If dishonor comes in, dishonor won't stay because it won't be able to stick a culture of honor. Jesus modeled this wonderfully. He valued those who nobody else valued. He would have said, I know you're a sinful woman. I value sinful women. I know you're a tax collector, Matthew, but I value tax collectors. I know you're a prostitute. I value prostitutes. You're a leper. I value lepers. You've been married and divorced multiple times. I, I value you. Everyone that no one else saw value in, he saw value in. And he honored them. And he healed them and he forgave them and he restored them and they followed him. And he honored uneducated fishermen. And one of, his, of the gang was, a, was basically a paramilitary. <laughs> one was a tax collector. And he honored them and he valued them and he saw them transformed. I, I, I would say the greatest culture of honor that has ever existed was Jesus and the disciples. And Judas couldn't stick it. And he had to bail. Whenever Jesus was opening his heart at the Last Supper, Judas had to bail. He couldn't handle the culture of honor that he was in. And he got out of there. And if we're going to follow Jesus and truly be his people, then we also need to have that culture of honor. So that might be one you have to review and, and look back at, at some of those points, some of those sort of ideas of how practically to cultivate this culture. But I hope you, you get the value of it, the importance of it. And I hope you get a wee bit of clarity about how to deal with evil people as well. You don't show contempt. You forgive. You hold no grudges. But you're not called to honor that which God hates. Amen. Let's pray and then we'll worship.